This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their free seven-day trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. This is Ebody and X and welcome to the show. I want to thank the many of you who took the time to fill out the survey, which I announced several weeks back. It's providing me a better sense of who you are and what you're expecting from the show. Um, As a result of some of your comments about the audio quality, specifically with the Skype interviews, I'm looking into some alternatives. But in the meantime, I made an investment in three USB microphones that I'll be FedExing to guests in the US and Canada. Uh, Beginning with today's episode, you should actually hear a big difference in the sound quality as a result of those mics. As with the app, this was all made possible by your donations. I'm really glad to know that you believe enough in the work that we do to contribute in the way that you have. Starting today, you'll actually hear the difference that you're making. Now, over the last two weeks, I've conducted half a dozen interviews, which I'm really excited to share with you in the, in the coming weeks. The first of these is with today's guest, Ellen Jacob. Now, she came to my attention after I read an article about her photo project, Substitutes, which documents the relationships between nannies of color and the children and families they work for in New York. Um, This project focuses on more than just race, but it also addresses issues of class, family, and even love. It's a powerful and thought-provoking series, which I'm more than pleased to share with you today. So enjoy our conversation with Ellen Jacob. Well, Ellen, welcome to The Candid Frame. When I first saw the story about your your series, Substitutes, on uh, Huffington Post, I took a look at the images and I saw the the story and I knew I needed to have you as a guest on your on my show and and I so appreciate it considering your your schedule. So so welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted and uh, and honored to be part of it. Thanks. 
your series substitutes, uh, you know, fires like on all cylinders. Taking a look at the at the work that it, it touches on issues of race, that it touches on issues of of class, on sexuals, uh, uh, and and no doubt the reason why there's been so much interest on so many fronts by people. Tell us a little about how this series of images started for you and why you chose to make it the focus of a of a personal photo project. Sure. Well, I live on uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And what I kept noticing is that the women pushing strollers tended to be women of color and the babies almost exclusively were white. And I always wondered why. I live in an area that's very liberal. Uh, People supposedly, if you were to ask them, would say they weren't racist, they weren't gender biased, uh, they believed in, you know, equal pay or, or fair wages. And I wondered, why did we have so many women of color pushing the strollers? And that, to be honest, I never saw the reverse. And uh, all that wondering got me to pick up my camera and to uh, and to start shooting them and to start photographing them and to start talking to them and to find out how they felt and how a lot of the uh, parents felt. And that became the genesis of, uh, of this project. You've mentioned that you were actually raised by a, a nanny at one point in your, in your childhood. How did that sort of inform what you were expecting to find even before you started making your initial forays into making the photographs and interviewing the subject? What sort of presumptions had you made yourself going into the project? And how were you surprised by what you did discover? Well, I, I, there was a nanny in my, in my household. My parents very much raised me, not the nanny. And when I was a kid, the nannies were also called babysitters. Uh, and I think the distinction today is that a babysitter really works a few hours a day or a few hours an evening as opposed to all day. And uh, my nanny was black and she was a wonderful woman, but uh, it was different times. She was not considered part of the family. She was considered a woman that we loved, respected and felt was very important to, to the family, but not necessarily a part of the family. And I just want to say uh, my nanny's name was Martha. And uh, and she went on to help raise my sister's kids. So there, I have a photograph of her in in this series, and that photo was taken when I was in college, and she was uh, with my sister's family. I think I had expected to find more honesty to a certain extent. I very much appreciated the love that the parents felt for the nanny. And I very much appreciated the love that the nanny felt for the children. But when I tried to raise issues of racism, tried to raise issues of inequality, tried to raise issues of income, I tended to find a lot of acceptance and not a lot of people questioning it. And that surprised me. Mm. So when you were first approaching people, uh, I'm sure you didn't have an open door into the lives of all these people. Um, Tell me about the initial forays in terms of making contact with with these nannies uh, in New York, making the photographs and and communicating with the with the families of the children. Sure. I uh, I live in an apartment building with over 200 units and there's a lot of children in the building. Um, And so I thought about approaching those women and I did approach some of them. But what I first wanted to do uh, photographically and graphically was show the ubiquitous nature of the woman pushing the strollers. 
So I started out doing more traditional street photography and just shooting, 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 creating picture after picture of nannies pushing strollers. And what I found was that I had many, many pictures of nannies pushing strollers. Sometimes you could see the child, sometimes you couldn't. And, um, and the pictures weren't very good, weren't very interesting, and didn't really get deep enough into understanding what was going on. So I started approaching some of the women in my building. And I also started going to the parks and just walking down the street. And I'm a pretty outgoing person. And I just started talking to people. And when people were responsive, I started spending time with them, talking with them, and photographing them. Some of the women I spent many days with, and some of the women I just spent an hour with. So did you find that that making that transition from simply making photographs of people on strollers was sort of a personal challenge for yourself to sort of get... Because you know, it seems like that those initial those initial photographs were sort of tentative, and I can imagine that a lot of people would feel, you know, a certain fear, anxiety about approaching people that they don't know. Was that an issue at all for you, or did you, or was that sort of secondary or, or to to what you felt you needed to do with the photographs? I think it was really secondary. I hear that a lot that people are timid about approaching people. Um, that's not something that I experience. I think what I more experienced was um, I've done many projects, some of them photographic, some of them, you know, publishing books and whatnot, uh, not necessarily photographic and a variety of creative projects. And I always find the creative process to be really interesting. And so I think there's always this point when you're doing something where you have uh, an idea in your head and you know exactly what you want it to be. And then you go ahead and you create that idea. And then you find that it doesn't do what you wanted it to do and that it doesn't communicate and it doesn't say what you wanted it to say. And I think there's always that moment, at least for me, where I have to honestly say, okay, this isn't working. I need to approach this differently to get across what I'm trying to get across. So I think it was more a mixture of uh, disappointment, anxiety, excitement, all that somewhat mixed together that had me start approaching people. And I still had this notion that I was going to use all those images of uh, the nannies, just sort of the more traditional street photography. And I had visions of putting them all together as a montage on a wall and putting them together as more uh, organized as a grid. And I was still going to use them all. And every time I've pulled them out and tried to use them, they just don't work for me. Mm. So when I went to start approaching the nannies, I think I was more excited and disappointment, if those make sense, disappointment that what I wanted to do didn't work, excited that I had to come up with a new way to make it work, and then also a little bit of that anticipation and hope that, it, that this time it will work. So when you were making your, your initial contacts with with the nannies, you mentioned sometimes you would spend days and, and, and or maybe some weeks with them. You know, the kids you include in the photographs are, are minors. So what concern did you have to make in terms of the, the parents' permission or awareness that you were making photographs for this particular series? Well, all of my pictures are taken in public places, and it does raise, uh, raise an issue that has come up with this project. Many of the images have model releases or just it's like a one or two line release uh, that, uh, that mothers or fathers signed. Uh, actually, I think it's all mothers. Many of the nannies signed it. But these are all images that are taken in public places where there's no presumption of privacy. Mm -hmm. And in America, 
Uh, if you were using them for artistic purposes or journalistic purposes, you actually don't need model releases. It does raise a lot of issues about how some parents feel, and, um, and, and that is definitely part of the whole thing, and that's definitely out there. But none of these images are showing children in any bad light. You know, I look at the images, and they're obviously loaded because of the history of race in this country. You know, the whole image of the, the black or the person of color taking care of white children goes back to, you know, the, the images of, of slavery and post-Civil War um, South. And and even though it's been, you've seen it in films, I think for the most part, it's it's not a prevalent image outside of cities like New York, where the population is so condensed. Uh, and so much life happens on the streets as compared to to Los Angeles. So when when people take a look at these these images, you're getting a really wide range of reaction to it. What are some of the reactions that you weren't expecting? Because obviously there are going to be people who are going to read into the images based on their own particular perspective and, and bias. But what have been some of the ways that you have been sort of surprised by the comments that they've made either online or, or, or when you've met people in person who are looking at the work. I think you always have to be careful of online comments. They, they, they sometimes amaze me. I think people have lost certain civility and certain uh, ways of behaving and talking when they make online comments. I think they feel they can say things in ways they might not in person. Um, I think the kinds of comments I got that were most surprising to me were people saying that I had chosen to only photograph women of color pushing white children and that they definitely have seen many white people pushing black children. And I want—I did not answer most of the comments online because I didn't want to get into battles with people and I wanted to let them have their own conversations. I didn't think it was the point of the work for me to interject myself into the comment sections. But I was really surprised by the number of people who thought, or the number of people who chose to comment, because it's always interesting who chooses to comment. But the fact that they did say uh, a few times that they wondered why I hadn't shot or photographed. I, I, I prefer to use the word photographed or create pictures than shot. But um, why they had why I hadn't included more images of white women pushing black children. Um, there are a few images of white women taking care of white babies. And what's interesting there, or white children, is that they are often asked if they are the mother. Mm. And that doesn't really happen when it's the other way around. And it is interesting because there are a lot of interracial families. So people often question who is the mother, who is the child. And we still, as a society, seem to have a hard time seeing a blended family as just exactly what it is. And it will be curious to see if Mayor de Blasio changes some of those attitudes yeah. and those you know, initial instincts and initial reactions that we have. Well, you, you were asking yourself, why is it there are so many people of color serving as nannies to, to white children? That was sort of the the question that, that spurred this whole project. What answers did you come up for yourself? Oh, I think it's a really hard, you know, I think the, the solutions and I think the question is a really hard one to answer. I think these, uh, I think it's so deeply ingrained in our society, how we respond to what types of jobs, what types of people have. I mean, one of the other 
reactions I got online was people said they should just be grateful to have a job. I just want to say that every nanny I spoke to was grateful to have a job. When I asked them if they got benefits, if they had paid sick days, if they had paid vacation, if they got health insurance, most of them did not, and yet they were still very grateful to have the job. I think the issues of racism and who gets these jobs, who gets educated so that they have a wider range of options in their lives, who has more opportunity, is so deep-seated in the American culture, it's really difficult to figure how we're going to break these patterns. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why it makes the, the whole discussion that much more complex is because there's there's the merging of both issues of race and class. Correct. And when I was looking at these, I was thinking, you know, if if the nanny is, say, from Eastern Europe, and is is coming here to serve as a nanny as opposed to an afro an afro caribbean uh woman i think there's a a presume a presumption that for the person who is east eastern european that this is not the end of her path in terms of her career that this is may maybe an opportunity for her to move forward in some way either in terms of her education or for work but when people think of someone of color they're not really making that same assumption because there's, because as a result of class and because of the uh, issues of race and the color of your skin, um, those options that you mentioned are are afforded more to certain people as opposed to others. I think that's really true. I found there was a the women who were white who were taking care of children. Uh, I'm thinking back. I believe there were two or three of them that I spoke with. But two of them that I'm thinking of uh, went to college. They both had college degrees. None of the women of color had college degrees. The two white women who were doing it, one of them was definitely not doing it as a career, but doing it as she was attempting to get a job. And one of the reasons she liked doing it was because she was able to get money, which was purely cash, not taxed, uh, which is a whole nother issue of, of, of how this works. And um, and she saw it as a way that she could work somewhat flexible hours. And she had a variety of families she worked for. Whereas more of the women of color really had to do this work 10 to 14 hours a day. Some of them commuted fairly long distances because if you put in a 10, you, know, you have to be there when the parents go to work and you have to stay there until the parents come home. You really don't get, you don't, it's not, you don't really, you do not get a break because you're taking care of children. You have to be alert all the time. And then you have to go home and you have your family to take care of. So if you're working a minimum of a 10 hour day, then you've got to commute if you're lucky an hour each way, because the nannies don't live in Manhattan. It's too expensive. So an hour each way, minimum that's 12 hours there's not a lot of time left to be with your own family and so most of them don't have other opportunities and so that is where you get into this whole thing of education of class and of expectations of the public because you're absolutely right I did not run into any I didn't run into any Eastern European nannies although I know they exist um, but I did not run into them in the four years that I did this work mm. You know, one of the things that I've, when I was reading in, uh, into this project that I wasn't hearing so much about is, is the whole issue of 
of guilt on the on the with the role of the uh, of the mother, you know, because it's all even with all the advances in terms of the, the the choices that women have, there if you if you become a mother, you can be made to be feel guilty if you are pursuing your own your own career. Um, part of it is that the fact that you know a two income household is just necessary now, whether you're living in New York or living anywhere else. And so having to have child care, either in the form of uh, using a child care facility or using a nanny, becomes a part of a necessary part of part of life. Were you were you able to sort of touch on or make any observations on that aspect of it uh, as part of your work on this project? Well, it was really interesting. Um, I did talk to many of the mothers and some of them were included in some of the photographs. I just wasn't as happy with the uh, with the results. Um, by no means is this project meant to say that women shouldn't have nannies. And that was another thing some people thought I was saying. And by no means am I saying that. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a nanny. My issues were just, why did I always see it from one perspective? Um, so I, I did find some of the women had guilt. Some of the women were very, very grateful for the nannies they had. They felt they were wonderful women. They felt they were part of the family. They felt they helped bring cultural uh, uh, education to their kids. They, uh, some of the nannies would bring songs and dances from whatever country they were from uh, to the kids. And, and most of the parents I spoke to really thought that was terrific. What was interesting about that is that these nannies would teach the kids dances and, and songs and whatnot. And then they would take the kids to ballet class or whatever, where they were paying a lot of money for the kid to learn ballet. Yet when they were doing it, it was part of their day-to-day -day job. It was just interesting to me. And I don't think that uh, there's any, you know, as I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I think as a society, we have certain constructs and certain ways and things of doing things that we think are very natural and that we never question. And they tend to be things that, that, that help perpetuate the racism, the class distinctions and the inequality in our society. And if we question them, they become very difficult. We have to become very honest with ourselves. And most of us don't want to do that. It's painful. And most of us don't have answers. So if you question things that you really don't have a good answer for, you're left feeling very unsettled. So better to not think about it, better to embrace the woman taking care of your children, love her as if she's part of your family till you no longer need her, and continue on with your life, fulfilling and doing the things that, that are important to you. And I get that, and I really understand that. So that when the woman did have guilt, they tended to appease that guilt by thinking that the woman who took care of their children was just the most wonderful person on the face of the planet. Hmm. What was interesting in, in seeing was how... The families, uh, particularly the moms, uh, expressed a love and affection for the, for the nanny. The nanny expressed a love and affection for the children. But I, I don't think I, I ever heard of, a, of the nanny having a particular affection or love for the mother or, or the family. And, and, and it brought to mind this whole issue of not, not the sincerity of these people's feelings for each other, but the, the question of how honest or true can love be when there's an inequality in terms of the power dynamic? You know, 
one of the things that really was interesting to me is being a nanny is the only job that I can think of where there is an expectation of love. Mm. I don't, when I worked in an office, no one expected me to love my coworkers. They expected me to get along with them and to be civil, but no one expected me to love them. And if I became friends with them, that was just an added bonus. But when you're a nanny, the parents, and it's interesting, we keep going back to the word mother. It's almost always the mother who is doing the hiring and doing the day-to-day management of the nanny and speaking with them. Uh, But there is this expectation of love in a financial transaction. And the nannies do grow to love the children. But I do think it raises that exact question that you're asking. What exactly is the love that we're talking about? What does that exactly mean? And, um, you know, the, the nannies also had their own children who they very much loved and often spent many more hours with the children of the people they worked for than they did with their own children. And I think the power that lies in, in your project is is not only the imagery, because I think that the imagery is certainly just sparks a lot of emotions, a lot of opinions, uh, but it's the fact that you took the time to find out the stories behind these people's lives and give us just a glimmer in terms of who they are as, as people. Uh, when did you realize that you needed to do that in order to really make the project be all that it could be? Well, I think to really understand and to take a good portrait or a good photograph, you really need to understand who you're shooting. So you can, you know, have a technically perfect image uh, and do it if you're technically proficient in 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, or an hour. But if you really want to capture that moment that has deep feeling, which is what I'm far more interested in, you I at least really need to know who I'm taking that photograph of, who I'm who I'm making that picture of. And I need to so that when I see a look in their eyes, when I see a look on their face, that, you, you know, just the exact moment that I push that shutter, a look between the two subjects when it's the nanny and the child, a look where they're not. I have to understand who I'm photographing. And that's what really became clear as well when I was uh, just doing the more street photography of the nannies pushing the strollers, really needed to get to know these women and understand them. You know, when I, uh, when I look at your other, your other work, it seems like your strength lies in, in your desire to be intimate with your subjects. And it's, it's lovely to see, because I see so many, particularly with a lot of people practice street photography, there's sort of a, a distance and a separation between them and their subjects. But it seems like you want to be as immersed with another person as much as you can be with, with a camera. You weren't trained as a photographer, so it seems like you've had some experience with professional photographers. You, married, you mentioned Mary Ellen Mark before, before our interview, but that whole sensibility of being close of being right in in that person's space and in their experience seems to inform so much of your photographs where does that come from since you know you may not have had necessarily the sort of formal training that some other photographers may have had well that's not completely true i have a bfa from pratt so i have an art school background i was a sculpture major but i did a lot of photography when i was there but that was a long time ago so and it was certainly pre-digital so it's partly true and then i didn't use my camera for many many years and i was a creative director in both advertising and publishing and that's where i worked with uh, mary ellen mark 
but I also did a lot of children's publishing and, um, and I worked at Scholastic where I did a lot of magazines with a strong journalism background there. And I'm also married to uh, somebody who was a journalist. So I believe strongly in, in, in the power of telling a story. And I believe that I use my camera and my photos are a way and I create my photos to tell a story and get a feeling across. So that to me is far more important than anything else that I can create. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. I'm working on several personal projects this year, which will eventually find their way onto my website. And the best thing about it is that I'm not going to have to wait for some web designer to eventually get around to updating my site for me. I'll be able to do it myself in a matter of minutes. That's because Squarespace makes it easy not only to create your site, but also to change it in any way you want, including adding or subtracting galleries, adding a blog, or updating your About You page. I can keep telling you about how simple it all is, but you can find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just explore it yourself. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. There has never been a better time to learn about photography. There are so many resources available to learn from. And while there's some good free content to be had, like in the form of YouTube, the quality of the content is all over the place. And don't even talk about the time that you have to dedicate just looking for that invaluable bit of information you need to take your photography to the next level. Lynda.com provides you a single destination where you can learn about any aspect of photography, including the fundamentals of exposure, the Photoshop techniques, and even the business of being a working photographer. Regardless of where you're starting from and where you're going, Lynda.com is designed to grow with you as you become a better and better photographer. With over 2,000 quality videos, you are not going to outgrow them anytime soon. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. So where do you feel like you've, you've, developed your your sensibility as a photographer i kind of don't like using the word style i it's not really the most perfectly descriptive word for what i'm going for but i think sensibility implies uh, a very sort of personal not only aesthetic but a personal way of seeing and and using that seeing to create images do you feel like it's mostly been as a result of working on these personal projects of just shooting of looking at other people's work where do you, how do you how do you feel like you've developed that that way of approaching your use of the camera well i think photography is so ubiquitous right now which is really fabulous i don't fault that but i think we need good editors around and so as i shoot photographs or or create pictures uh 
as Peter and David Turnley like to say, and I think they're absolutely right. Um, but as I do that, I want my imagery to say something and to have some meaning behind it. And I believe one of the things that really separates a snapshot from a photograph that has meaning is the fact that there's some emotion in that image and that it tells a story. And for me to do that, I need to understand and know the person that I am photographing. And I have to be able to have some compassion for them and for their situation, good, bad, or, or not. And that's what I strive to do in my photos, more than striving to make the most technically proficient image. I'm far more interested in the story and the feeling that comes from that image. Obviously, you have to have some technical proficiency or you don't have an image. But I'm much more interested in feeling that feeling that you get when you see a photo that hits you than I am when you see a more commercial type of a portrait that's beautifully lit in a studio. So I tend to shoot with natural light. So it's, you know, those images can leave me cold. They have a purpose, but it's not what I'm trying to do with my work. You're working, you're working now as a full-time photographer. You're not still doing the work for the advertising agency. Is that right? That I don't haven't worked in advertising agencies in many, many years. I work, I still do a little bit of publishing, but I primarily do my photography, yes. So tell me about that transition, because I, I talk to a lot of people who, uh, who photography wasn't their first career. And making that transition is always, um, can always be a sort of difficult one, uh, can definitely be filled with its own, own special sets of anxiety. Um, tell us about your journey in terms of making that move from the world that you were in before to that of being a photographer. Well, I often say that, uh, that I've had a series of goals in my life. And what I have found is I have to be willing to shift those goals if I want to be able to achieve things and I want to be realistic about achieving certain things. So back in, uh, was it 2007, 2008, with the uh, global financial debacle? Mm -hmm. uh, I had had a book packaging business that was quite lucrative. And a book packager, for people who don't know, is really being almost like a producer of a movie, but it is of creating books. So you put together the whole team, you come up with ideas, and you uh, generally, the way my business worked is I uh, worked with large book publishers and created uh, books for children. So that all went away with the uh, global financial debacle. And uh, and I needed to do something that was going to be fulfilling for myself. And I had always wanted to be creating my art and saying things, but I had not stopped to have the time to do it. And I always said that even though I was a sculpture major, and by the way, I did very uh, conceptual art as, as a sculpture major at Pratt. I didn't do traditional uh, sculpture. And I always said that I wanted to have a way to be able to do that. And then I justified the part of being in the more commercial world with saying that working in a creative field and helping to make children literate was fulfilling that part of me. And I believe it did for many, many years. But what I was able to do, and it was quite painful, it was really quite painful, was to pick up my camera again and almost out of desperation of having to do something to fill the day so that I would get out of bed in the morning, mm. 
when I wasn't having the work, that's what made me start having to look at the things that had been interesting to me in the world and start saying, I need to find a way to express what I'm thinking about this. So I've always been somebody where race is a big uh, concern. Racism is a big concern of mine. Inequality of any sort is a concern of mine. The fact that as a society, we don't talk about these things more is a concern of mine. And I thought that this might be the perfect opportunity to be able to merge the art side of me and these more social, political, whatever you want to call them, concerns of mine and really start trying to create things. And that's what I started doing. And I have to say it was exceedingly painful. There were technical things I didn't know that I had to learn. I don't like having to learn things like that. Um, I like knowing them at this point in my life. Uh, And it was, um, but I really, somebody asked me what career advice I would give to anybody. And I gave them one word and it was persist. Mm. Yeah, that is the perfect word for anyone who wants to. I mean, I'll say I'm 58 years old. We never talk about our age, which is another issue in society. Uh, We don't pick our age. It's just, you know, we live and that's our age. But we don't like to say how old we are because we have all sorts of expectations of where and what people should do and have been. Um, I had this show at Soho Photo Gallery, which was sort of a lifelong dream of mine. I had no idea that this work was going to garner the type of response that it did. And it's been exceedingly gratifying and rewarding. Uh, It's almost every day I wake up still now. It's been going on for two months. Somebody else wants to talk to me about this work. I had never learned how to do that, you know, how to be interviewed or anything like that. And so all that has been new to me. And it's incredibly rewarding. And what it's made me really realize is it's so important for me to have my work say something to have it hit people and have it have an issue that matters to them. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of my, one of my questions for you is like, you know, you've gotten so much media attention as a result of this and, and photographers are notorious for, you know, wanting their photographs to sort of speak for themselves. But, you know, when, when bodies of work like this one, you know, capture the fascination of, of the public audience, uh, photographers are often called on to, to speak and explain why this and, and why that, why you made the pictures or, or in this case, what, you know, you see as solutions to a, a problem that th- these photographs sort of pose. So tell me about that, that journey of having to be placed in that role like you are right now where you know where where you're getting thrown all these questions and you're sort of expected to have answers that you may not necessarily have I think the most interesting thing about it is you get I I get asked questions and I come up with answers and then the mind is always an interesting place and then later I say to myself oh gosh I wish I had said I could have said mm. if only I understood you know if only I understood because answering questions when they're thrown at you is at least for me, I have an, a, an array of feelings. So in some days I feel more articulate than other days. And some days I'm more nervous about doing it than other times. Um, what's really rewarding is the fact that people are interested and that people want to know. But it's really, um, I've been listening to some of the Olympic athletes say what it's like. And, you know, they're sort of on this cloud and they don't quite know 
want to say anything because they want to wait till they get a little more grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. It's been so surprising to me that I still uh, feel that I'm not quite, I don't quite believe the response it's had. I have to say it's been incredibly gratifying, humbling, and, and incredibly wonderful. Um, and I've dealt with it some days better than other days and some interviews better than other interviews. I have a lot more respect for people who talk on television now that I can tell you. <laughs> so one of the things about this project and just any work that, that, that gets as much attention is that you get, you get it from both ends. You get people who are praising the work and then the people who are condemning it. And then the people are saying that it's beautiful work and other people saying that it's pedestrian. So, you know, you know, one of the one of the ideas is just to avoid all of that completely and just ignore it. But you know, you're human, so you can't be fascinated by hearing what people have to say. But how do you sort of defend yourself from from the influences of both, so that you keep yourself rooted, you know, not only in yourself, but in terms of the work that you're you're trying to do, not only with this project, but with any subsequent project. Right. Well, what was also interesting about this is that I was. Uh, I was very deeply involved in the project I'm working on now, and that project has really taken a hiatus while I've been more involved in this project. And so I'm slowly starting to get my mind back into that. Uh, I'm very grateful for, for, for all of this attention. And I think most of the negative comments I've been able to understand and even the positive ones really come from people's own life experience. And that's what's been really interesting. And I'm also amazed at how people don't necessarily read carefully or look carefully. And they bring so much of what they think I'm saying to what they comment and say. And that's been really interesting. I have had people say, why are you mommy bashing? Well, no place in my mommy bashing. So that becomes really interesting. And on the other side of that, I've had people say, isn't it fabulous that you raised this issue? I thought this, you know, I've thought the same thing for years. Mm. So I think that um, I, you know, it's not as if I've, I'm able to maintain my level of, 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 of who I am and what all this response is really about uh, and be grounded in that because just of who I am and understanding that it's the issue uh, that has really raised this, not me, but the issue that has raised this type of response. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about um, editing. And can you tell me about the editing process for this? And you mentioned that your husband was a, as a journalist. So uh, what help may have he provided in terms of culling through all of those images and bringing them down to you know, a really strong core of images and stories. Right. Um, I did have my husband help me. It was probably, uh, he is a word person. I mean, obviously he's, he's visual to a certain extent, but um, I found the editing process so painful. I mean, so incredibly painful. And uh, Robert Frank, who's one of my favorite photographers, when he did The Americans, 
he speaks about having, I think it's, um, and please, if I have the exact numbers wrong, uh, but he speaks about having like a thousand images around his apartment for a year and every day pulling images out to make the 80 images, I believe it is, that ended up in the Americans and how painful that was and how he had to take images that were his favorite image and take that away so that he would have uh, the, you know, so that the series and the book would really work well. And um, I found the same thing. I found it so, so difficult. And I would sit in Lightroom picking images from each shoot and I would put them into series and I would start looking at them and I would uh, shuffle them around all the time and uh, just keep playing with them. I did have uh, some help in editing that I sometimes listened to and sometimes didn't. But the project went on for about four years and what I found was that the nannies who I had photographed and uh, and selected images, those just became the images that I would use. And recently I went back and I was looking for a few other kinds of images. And I was surprised at what I found in the shoots that I had not, you know, that I'd forgotten about because it hadn't been one of the selects. And I think in that whole process of editing, it so depends on what the end result is that you want. Because that's uh, that's what you're looking for each time you edit, or that's what I'm looking for. But I find editing to be exceedingly painful and difficult. And I would also suggest that um, I need to, so I suggest it to others, is to trust my instincts on what image I think is best. Because I would ask many people, and if I ask five people, generally speaking, I would get three different answers. Yeah. And that's not really helpful. That just makes, you know, the mind is a really interesting place to be. And it just makes that chatter and that inability to, to, to keep focused worse. Yeah. With this project substitutes, how did people find out about the work? Did you just put it on your website? Did someone on a, on a blog or, or, uh, or on, at a, on a website, sort of discover the work and write about it. What what sort of propelled all this? What it resulted in all this attention that you've gotten to for the series? I had a show at Soho Photo Gallery uh, at 15 White Street in Tribeca in New York, and there was a listing of what was at art galleries, and a gentleman from Slate. Uh, called me. He saw that listing and thought it was interesting. And they carried a piece. And by the way, we had discussions about uh, rights and model releases. And um, it was really an interesting conversation. And uh, he ran the first piece and it just took off from there. And I'm forever grateful to him. Did having the model releases help you in terms of getting getting the, the story published in Slate? No, um, what was really interesting, uh, Jordan Teacher was the editor who, or the writer of their photo blog, Beyond, who contacted me, and uh, and I'm very grateful to him uh, that he saw something in this work and was really intrigued by it, and he was the one who wrote the first piece. His editor, Catherine Goldstein, spoke to me and, and spoke to their lawyers. Uh, the First Amendment protects us, and the fact that this is uh, journalism and art uh, protects us that we don't need model releases. 
But Catherine uh, spoke to me. And so we got on the phone and I was all ready to, to, you know, get up there and be on my soapbox and explain the First Amendment to her and tell her how much I didn't need model releases, even though I have some and blah, blah, blah. And she asked me because um, one of the things about this work, I'm just going to digress for a minute, is it's a mix still of street photography and posed images. So there are some images of nannies and bus stops and uh, one going through a window at McDonald's. So Catherine asked me if I had spoken to the nannies at the image that's uh, a nanny and a child. Uh, and I probably shouldn't use the word nanny. You'll hear why in a minute. But asked me if I'd spoken to the woman in the bus stop and had spoken to the woman in the McDonald's image. Uh, and I said no. And she said to me, how can you tell them that? I mean, how do you know then that she was a nanny? I thought that was like that was the whole point of my one of the whole points of my work. And I had fallen for it. Mm. And I was so impressed with that, that I uh, and they did not run the bus stop images or the image at McDonald's. And I changed the caption information when I ran that moving forward. So it would say just like, you know, after school at 86th and Broadway. But I did not say that the woman was a nanny. But when we look at that image, we all assume that that woman and she probably was. But we all assume that that woman is a nanny. And if the race were reverse, I do not think we would necessarily have that presumption or if they were of the same race. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just a perfect anecdote because it just tells you how pervasive that way of thinking is for everyone. You know, and Me it, it included. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're you're poor or you're rich or whether you're black or you're white. You know, we're we're all living in the same society, so we're always making the same presumptions about people with, uh, you know, with respect to the way they that they look. It doesn't necessarily make us make us prejudice, but it just it just demonstrates that those in sort of inherent biases and assumptions that we make with people is part of how we are raised in this in this world and in this country. Yeah. And I think it's so important to be willing to be honest and say, OK, I do see people of color and I do think X, Y or Z or I see a white person or I see a this person or somebody dressed in that fashion. And it's OK to have that thought. I think it's very, very human. What I do with those thoughts is say, OK, I have that thought, but I don't believe that and I don't have to act on that. And then I get to act as what I perceive to be a better human being. But to deny that a thought enters our head, which I think in society, we're so scared with race to say that any of these thoughts that we might feel are not appropriate enter our heads, that that becomes a block. And it's interesting because I found a lot of that with the nannies, that they would be in some ways timid to say that they would prefer to have, I would have to push them for them to say that, sure, they'd like to have paid vacations or they'd like to have health insurance. Uh, many of them, in a sense, didn't believe that that was something that could ever be theirs or should be theirs to a certain extent. So they just pushed it out of mind. Hmm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to uh, recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, can I mention two? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so I'm really uh, 
the project I'm working, it's a long answer if that's okay. The project I'm working on now is called Waiting Room. And I photographed a woman who was a friend of mine, younger than me, dying of cancer. And she was in a nursing home for oh, well over a year. And there's been a lot of other death in my life uh, recently. And I am intrigued with that period of time between life and death, where as a society, we tend to put people places where we don't really have to see them and we don't have to deal with them because it's painful and ugly. And I'm putting together a installation and mixing words along with my imagery. And so the two people who are so inspiring to me right now are Jim Goldberg and Christina DeMittle. And their work in very different ways combines imagery with, uh, with words. And Sophie Callie as well, if I can mention three. And how would you, how do you spell the, the last, the, the names of the last two you mentioned? Um, sure. Well, Jim Goldberg is uh, G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G. Sophie Calais, and I might be mispronouncing it because my French is terrible, but it's S-O-P-H-I-E, and her last name is C-A-L-L-E. And then the other woman who has gotten some recognition in Europe for a project called Afronauts with an F for the uh is spelled C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, uh, then a D-E, D -E, and then capital M-I-D-D-E-L. And where can people go to find out more about you and all the work that you've been doing? Uh, EllenJacob.com, or you can Google Ellen Jacob or Ellen Jacob Substitutes. And there's quite a bit that comes up. And so you can get the Huffington Post piece. I was on MSNBC, which is now on, I put up on YouTube, uh, on WPIX, which is a local New York TV station, the Slate piece. And um, I will end with saying I, uh, one of the pieces was selected. One of the images at the Center for Fine Art Photography had a, sh uh, a show titled Family. And one of the pieces was sel uh, selected. It was a juried show. And when I got out to Fort Collins, Colorado, which is a, it's a wonderful place, uh, the, they were uncertain if the image was of a mother-daughter or what the relationship was because they were looking at the one image in isolation and they didn't have the statement and they th didn't have all the other information about the series. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so that was really lovely. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for, for joining us and, and for sharing your story and your images with us. I really enjoyed having the chance to talk with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me be part of this. You do wonderful work. Thanks. Candid Frame's terrific. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.